Hello everyone and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Ads Lyson. Before we start today's podcast, if you're looking for surfing and outdoor gear, look no further. Go to Northcourt on the internet and use the discount code, capital letters, GRUMPYSURFER15 to receive 15% off your purchase. Northcourt are one of the leading surfing hardware brands in my eyes for the quality of product they create, so don't miss out. Also, before we start, the WaveKey guys have given us a discount code. So if you want 10% off your WaveKey subscription, use the code, capital letters, one word, WaveKeyGrump to receive 10% off your subscription. And this is valid until the 1st of July, 2021. So if you want 10% off your WaveKey subscription, use the code, capital letters, WaveKeyGrump to receive 10% off your subscription. What can I say about my guest today? He works for a previous podcast guest, Dan Maker, and runs a mirror company called Green Overhead. Their main priority is organizing surf trips in Indonesia and the Maldives, but also selling some of the best surfing brands in the world, such as Sharpie and Dakine. So please enjoy my conversation with John Jameson. John Jameson, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Hello, mate. I'm all right, thanks. Yeah, good. It's a bit early for me this morning, but the sun's out. So, uh, yeah, nice way to start the day. Thanks for having me. Early? It's nine o'clock. <laughs> That's early for me. Do you know what? It's really, really nice to be able to actually do this social distancing, of course, in person as opposed to doing it over Zoom. Yeah, yeah. I've been looking forward to this. I'm actually out of the house, being able to talk to somebody, look at them properly. Yeah, and just getting out and about, and it's a godsend. And with the sun out and shining, even though it's a bit early, like, I mean, I get up early now anyway, whatever, just get out of the house. <laughs> it's been quite strange in our little lockdown serials are starting to come to an end slowly, so yep. things are only going to get better, I think. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people were surfing, I think, when they lived on the beach during lockdown. If you couldn't do that, it must have been an absolute killer. I don't know how people are surviving, but it's, um, yeah, it's coming to an end now. Just need some travel. As soon as that opens up, we are home and hosed. Yeah, which is one of the reasons why we're going to have a little chat about. But yeah, I, I found everyone's perceptions of how they took these lockdowns and and the COVID piece very, very strange because some people didn't want to leave their house, even though they lived five, ten minutes from the yeah, beach, a couple yeah. of miles from the beach. Other people did. There were people that were drawn a little bit. Sometimes they were like, no, I can't do that today because of such and such, or I'm going to go down to the beach. And so they kind of split 50-50. I thought it was all really strange because obviously there was no real proper guidance. It was all more like gu- guidelines and stuff. Yeah, and is surfing exercise or not? Well, we know it is because we surf loads. If you didn't surf and you didn't know actually how physically hard it can be, especially where we surf all the time, right? Does it is it really exercise and people kicking off about it and how local is local and can you walk to the beach? Do you cycle? Uh, yeah, it was all a bit strange. Got a bit weird back then for a while. <laughs> I enjoyed myself anyway, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see you buzzing around out back on some of those big bombs. Yeah, mate. Uh, yeah. Uh, have you been watching the WSL stuff? So, I so have. The, New- the Newcastle events just finished. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's some funny thing. Yeah. What did I see? Um, I think it must have been like the round of 16 hopping their way through from like shoulder high out back all the way to that gnarly little shore break that seemed to break boards every five minutes but yeah it's been pretty good it's just good to see it back it's good to see all the boys back in the water 
ripping, of course. They're all still absolutely ripping. I think the fact they got it in Australia means that they obviously can hold two or three legs without having to fly everybody everywhere, which is going to be pretty good. It means they can do probably quite a number of events in one hit in a short space of time. Yeah, so they're doing they're doing four events. So they've just done the first one in Newcastle. The next one's yeah. in Narrabeen in a, yeah. in a week or so. And then they're going over to the West Coast. They're going to do Margaret River and then they've got I can't remember what the island's called there's like a little island on the west coast that. Uh, uh, yeah 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 oh, I can't remember that one they're basically going to stay on there and it's it's kind of been tied in a little bit with like the rip curl search yeah kind of thing oh, well they'll be flying to go over to WA that's for sure yeah I mean <laughs> that that'll be pretty cool I thought the Newcastle event was was, was alright but it kind of took the like the premise away of the dream tour where they went to this beach break in Newcastle and the conditions for the first sort of like day and a half were pretty oh shocking yeah rubbish. I mean that's pretty much what we get <laughs> I mean it'll, it'll have a lot more punch I mean I surf that wave loads of times on that beach just because it's right there by the town but yeah it's not it wasn't so much dream tour I mean what's crazy though is still the moves that they do in those sorts of waves and like it got to like the semi-finals and the final they're still finding barrels uh, it's just ridiculous and if you think about how they're surfing those sorts of waves, when it is actually the dream tour and they're back at like massive Margaret River, like remember some of those John John turns he was doing a few years back before the pandemic, it was crazy. It was like eight to 10 foot um, on his, on his, was it a six O ghost? He was rising, Pizel ghost. <clears throat> I mean, some of those boards that are just surfing the North Shore and like five tens, five elevens yeah. is absolutely crazy, isn't it? insane. I mean, back when we first started, that would have been like a six eight a seven two sort of semi gun yeah and yeah eight foot long yeah. about a foot wide and with about 20 liters of volume in it just paddling around catching nothing but we look good at the time it wouldn't look good now <laughs> definitely not a good look <laughs> yeah big wave dave with his massive board on the top of there with his little short sticks yeah crazy yeah that's changed but no it's good to see him back in i mean i've been glued to the app watching it a few, I mean, I've I've got my favourites who I want to win. But I think, I mean, this contest is, was just dominated by the Brazilians. I mean, they're great in those sorts of ways, right? Exactly the same as they get in Brazil. They were brought up on those sorts of waves. And they, you know, just punt out a massive air reverse with no speed. Yet they're going super high. I don't know how they do it. That's crazy. I think it's really strange because I, I, I listen to a lot of podcasts, which people that listen to this know I do. And a lot of guys were bringing out like the big guns saying, you know, Ryan Callahan was going to win it. Like all the local guys, yeah. uh, Morgan Siblich did really, really well, knocked out John John. He did, yeah. Riding his 77 uh, sharp eye. Yeah, yeah, which was absolutely outstanding. And I think it was, you know, no one no one saw that one coming yeah, at all. Rips. But there was, yeah, there was, there was a lot of really good surfing. I mean, Italo, Philippe Toledo, Medina as yeah, well, so Gabriel Medina, Medina yeah. absolutely flying over. But the one thing that I took away from it was Chris Amore's air yeah. in the oh, final. Yeah, I was like, because I've watched surfing for so long, and I and I, I really like women surfing, not because they're chicks, but because I find that they're not really concentrating so much on like power. It's more technique and flow yeah they're trying to get turns in yeah yeah yeah, more maneuvers it's a little bit like that their styles that they surf with 
is is so unique whereas you've got the guys that are on the actual main tour they're all under coaches and people like that so everything can be a little bit robotic and look very very similar unless you're looking at the you know minor minor things and for her to throw something like that out there put put surfing for women like right on the map I think I think it was just a, like super amazing even though it was just like what a backside no frontside Rio or something wasn't it or yeah it's just frontside 360 yeah yeah it's funny I mean she didn't even look like she was going that fast but she still got up there and the landing I love the landing because she stuck the landing and then whipped it round like the last 180 as soon as those fins stuck in she whipped it round super quick uh, so that was it. Was great to see it at such a high level in the final. You know, there's a few other the ladies that are doing those sorts of turns and doing those sorts of airs. You know, Sally Fitzgibbons has landed a, a few. There's loads of others. If you watch them free surf, they land loads, which is great. But it does take it to another level. And again, it's Merryweather Beach. The waves weren't that great, so that is a whole other level of surfing. I mean, if you and I were out there, we probably well, we probably wouldn't even go in. We'd be in the pub. Um, but then we might just kind of splosh around and get hammered on the inside. Yeah, that, that shelf of rocks on the yeah. inside looks super yeah. gnarly. I was like that. I got yeah. my name all over it. Yeah, <laughs> yes. yeah, yeah. From the back of my head or something. <laughs> Mate, so let's have a little talk about your, your background. And one of the reasons why, you know, you're on the podcast today is we've come to talk about um, boat trips. Yeah. So you, yeah. Um, I did Dan Maker. Uh, a few weeks ago, yeah. who is one of the owners of Green Over Sports. There's a sideline to Green Over Sports called Green Overhead, which you're, which yeah, you're part that's, of. Yeah, yeah, part of that. And um, you organise boat trips for them, don't you? I do. Yeah, yeah. Green Overhead is like the the surfing element of what Dan does. I mean, I know he talked about it a little bit on the last podcast. So he he sent me here to talk about the the boat trip part of it, the surfing part of it, boards all that sort of stuff. But it's one of those areas that like everyone talks about it. Like I can't really go to the beach now and stick my car in a car park without someone coming over and saying, when's the next trip? How do I go on it? How, you know, I'll send you my email details, all that sort of stuff. And you're like, yeah, cool. So I, it's just become, I guess over the last 20 years, 21, 22 years, it's become a bit of a beast. And we were doing it, I was doing it just for, basically shits and giggles and trips um a usual crew of boys every year two three times a year or whatever <clears throat> but then it just grew and i was like well why are we putting in all this effort just for having like a bit of fun because we're now going on trips with people that we don't know that well uh, the boats are getting bigger the destinations are getting a little bit more out there the travel's getting harder to logistically work out and the crews that the people that we're taking with us are getting a little bit more needy <laughs> and different groups have different needs some just pay and they're going to be there because they've been loads of times before some people they literally need the hand being held through the airport which is fine it doesn't actually bother me so we turned it into probably still trips for mates but i'd say it's got a little bit of a kind of marketing element to it um and if it runs a if it runs a small business and it helps it tick over then there's loads of trips for loads of loads of our mates and loads of extra people um and there's kit and there's boards and then that span into doing boards which is spun into wetsuits um so kind of growing by the week <laughs> despite the pandemic Let's do what I always do and take it right back to the beginning. So let's talk a little bit about your background. So like where you grew up and how you actually got into surfing itself to get to where you are. Yeah. 
I grew up in Dorset originally, but was spent most of my time in Devon. So uh, from a young age, I was like in the sea all the time. My mum was a windsurfer. Um, my dad into normal sports, a lot of football and rugby. I was kind of into loads and loads of sports, but I got to mid-teens, I'd say. So quite late to get into surfing, actually. I got into my mid-teens. I was windsurfing loads and always in the water. So loads of fishing, did a whole bunch of wakeboarding and water skiing and all that sort of stuff. Um, but got on my first surfboard in, in my teenage years uh, and then just didn't get off it basically. And despite like going to uni and all those sorts of things, I've always been in Devon or actually been traveling. So I, I, I left home and went to uni pretty early actually. Like I was at uni at, at 18, but I was gone from home at 17 and then just surfed. So I did the minimum, the least minimum effort at university, but just surf with a whole bunch of boys that I got to know that they're all from Cornwall, north coast of Cornwall. So I was down there from, I'd say mid-teens uh, and haven't really left despite all the travel. Um, so it's been surfing here, boat trips, lots of travel, but never really look back. And I don't really do anything else, to be honest. <laughs> Where did you travel? Where were some of the places that you traveled when you were younger? Yeah, so I it, I think it all, so really young was all the usual places like France every year for a big long stint, loads of Fertaventura chips, all those sorts of stereotypical places that you go when you've got no money, you've maybe got a week that you can get away and you want a cheap flight, cheap accommodation, all that sort of stuff, but you want a guarantee way. So we spent a lot of winters, Fertaventura, all, all the Canary Islands. Morocco a fair bit during the winters here and then it all sort of started I think yeah 21 22 years ago where I went to Bali for a good good amount of time and then over to Australia as well and kind of bounced between the two which if you're gonna really work on your surfing and surf loads of good waves non-stop that's the place to do it because the flights are dead easy you're in and out of both countries really super quick so like where the where the CT is now, Merriweather, Newcastle, surf that a whole bunch. Was down on the northern beaches in just north of Sydney. So lived in Avalon for a little bit, but surf Narrabeen, Avalon, all those sorts of waves. I mean, they're all very typical Australian beach breaks, but you can surf every day. And then in and out of Bali. I mean, I remember being in Bali at Karamas before any of the hotels or anything were there. And it's just a, a, an amazing right-hander, which was pretty empty. So surf that loads. And then obviously up on the peninsula, surfing Padang Padang, Ulus, all the way through to Dreamlands. Even even spent a few weeks just surfing the main beach at Kuta because it had a sandbar on it, which was pumping. So it started there really. And that's what flicked the Indo switch. And I guess I just got a bit bored of being on the land because every now and again, you'd be in a lineup and a boat would turn up. And you'd be like, where have you guys come from? And they're like, oh, well, actually, we've been on a boat and now we're just having a few days in Bali chilling out. And I was like, well, what's a boat like? And they're like, you just jump off the boat and you surf. You know, there's no messing around. All the boys are on the boat. It's like a floating hotel. We've got a whole bunch of beers. The stereo's going. And this is back in like 1999, 2000. And I was like, I, I've got to give that a go. So I came home to the UK, put a really small crew together. And that's where it started. I surfed Bali quite a bit between sort of 2000 and 2006. And uh, when you said about Kramas, I was trying to remember the other day because when I first watched it on the TV, you know, on the comp on the on the WSL, I, I was um, 
look, I was looking at it. Oh, that looks so familiar. Like not the hotels and stuff like you're saying, but just sort of like the surrounding yeah, area. Yeah. And I remember I uh, I got to know a couple of couple of the beach boys, some of the locals that just rented the um, the surfboards on the beach in Kuta. Uh, you know, I got to know and paid them a little bit of money and they used to, you know, <laughs> take me around and, you know, lash me up with a bit of food and stuff. That's how I ended up out in G-Land. Fuck me, that's another story. But um, <laughs> We'll get into that one later. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I ended up at this one place and I just remember sitting there and you know, like the little wooden shelters that they have that they built just back yeah, off the beach. Yeah, right. I remember just pulling up there on the, on the back of a bike and just standing there and just seeing this perfect, like, little right-hander, almost like an A-frame, knocking out and I was like oh my god and there was no one there yeah there was, there it, was no one there empty back then so the three of us just grabbed our boards off these bikes and just jumped out there and it was like you know head high a little bit above head high but yeah anything for me is above head high because I'm about four foot tall but <laughs> um, so we battled out there and it's just like this perfect lineup for like a whole day and I come out and one of the lads had nipped away and gone to see his mate and got some like grilled fish and some, you know, sticky rice and we're eating that. And then we go back in again. Yeah, you yeah. can surf. I mean, you can surf nonstop out there. It's sick. I mean, even in the even in the off season, like in the winter, it's still really good. And in my mind, I always do this thing. It's like, well, do I want to be at home in a 6'4 hooded wetsuit? driving around trying to find some quiet corner out the way of some howling southwest wind and even then it's going to be rubbished and probably get attacked by a seal something crap's going to happen or you snap your board (laughs) or you spend the whole time paddling or do you just want to float around somewhere having saved up a little bit of cash which is what we did when we were a lot younger you've got no idea really what you're doing but you've saved up 500 quid from working on a building site and you fly over there and I remember I actually, we, I went there with my missus and um, we I was sat, we were at Karama's actually and it was just perfect. Like, yeah, like you say, head high, but that's a great wave. Although you can't see the reef and the reef is bloody sharp, like way sharper than anyone would think. And because you can't see it, you don't know how deep it is. But anyway, and I'm sat in the lineup, I'm looking back at the beach and there's a guy selling my, trying to sell my wife a steering wheel and oh. I actually bought my wife at the time, a steering wheel and a crossbow. And it was the weirdest sensation I've ever had. I'm sat there thinking, do I go in and help out? Because it's a pretty good looking crossbow. But I quite like the steering wheel as well. And I'm like, only in Bali. Only in Bali could we be doing this. Anyway, I stayed in the lineup for another couple of hours and left a turret. <laughs> yeah, I took my wife to Bali the one and the only time that I went with her. And it was when we first met. It was the summer of the, the when we first met. And I told her, look, I, I was going there anyway. I'd already bought my ticket. I said, do you want to come? I went in the water the first day for about three hours. <laughs> she was not happy when I was that the first surfing experience? The first surfing, uh, up, right, I'm, I'm hooked up with a surfer here. I'm in a tropical destination and I haven't seen them all day. Yeah, yeah. so, uh, yeah, she, she's a, she's a northern girl. She's from, like, Liverpool Way up, yeah. by, uh, up by the Wirral. And... Uh, yeah, it, it really didn't go down well. She probably had this, you know, dream imagination about going to Indonesia and, you know, walking through the jungle and yeah. doing this and just chilling on the beach. Cocktails at five. It's like, no, that's not yeah. happening. 
Little did you know off. she was going to be on her own the majority of the time. <laughs> <laughs> Mine was the same. I remember before we flew to Australia, like when we first met, I was like, oh, look, I'm going to go to Australia. You come in. She said, yeah. I was like, you need to know that I'm going to go for surfing and see that massive board bag full of boards. It's because I'm going to be in the water a lot. So I remember that conversation. It was in a pub, actually, very late one night. And I was like, look, just so you know. I will be surfing a lot. And I remember having to explain what that actually meant. She was like, what, like half an hour? I'm like, no. As soon as the sun comes up to when the sun goes down, I might get out for lunch, but we'll see. Back in the days when I was fit and you could actually surf for that amount of time. Yeah, not these days. But she got used to it pretty quick, so it was fine. So when you were doing those trips and you were talking to those guys about being on the boat, was that kind of the, the little fire that lit behind you? So how did you actually get into organizing boat trips in the first place yeah so i came home from that yeah I did like the fire um and i came home and i was surfing regularly with a with a, a bunch of guys from cornwall um some of which were just awesome surfers you know really really good so what we said is well look we'll we'll do six months worth of work we'll slog it out whatever we need to do literally building sites restaurants whatever it was um, I think I was a brickie for a good six months. Terrible brickie. Um, put the cash together. And the first time we did it, actually, we we found a really cheap trip. It was a two-week boat trip in the Maldives. And we were like, well, that's going to be easier to get to than Indo. So we'll just see how it goes. And also the cost of Indo at that time, it was really high cost. But the boats, like the safety, it was all a little bit dodgy. And there's loads of stuff. I mean, I've got so many stories. It's a bit crazy. So we all put some money together and we did a very stereotypical thing where I just emailed uh, World Safaris down on the Sunshine Coast in Australia. And I've actually, I know if, and through a friend of a friend, I knew a few guys that run World Safaris. We got some good friends that emigrated and now live like next door to their offices. So I've spoken to them before uh, and they hooked us up with a, a two-week boat trip to the Maldives. And I think that was... 1999 maybe something like that and we we didn't we didn't charter the whole boat um it was i mean looking back now it was some crappy 70 foot i mean i don't know what it was it barely had an engine it barely moved um and it stank of diesel when we got there so we learned a lot on that first trip and i didn't think it was going to be a regular thing we're like we're just going to do a boat trip it's going to be amazing it's a one-off life event amazing memories but then when we came back, I was like, well, I think we can do that better. Because, of course, what happens is you turn up, you get on your boat, you park up in the lineup. And because we didn't charter the whole boat, we there was like four of us went. And then there was another crew of four guys. I don't I can't remember where they were from. And then there's a couple other guys. So we had 10 on the boat, four of which we knew and six of which we didn't. But as our boat would pull up to the lineup... Like you got to hang your head in shame. It was that, it was that bad. <laughs> so <laughs> people would instantly, as soon as you jump off the boat and paddle into the lineup, they'd start taking the piss. They're like, are you off that crappy old pirate ship? We're like, yeah, yeah. And then when they clock on the fact you got a British accent, you kind of really have to take your, take your place in the queue and wait to get a wave. But that was cool. I mean, it was good fun because it was a first one and you learn loads, but we didn't go with the intention of making it a regular thing. But looking from our boat at the other boats and the fact that, you know, they've got a big boat and they've got like a, 
in the Maldives, a Dhoni that whizzes them in and around the lineup. So you're way more mobile. And some of them had proper speedboats at that point, ribs and stuff. I was like, yeah, you can do this much better. And then, of course, you do your research properly when you get back and you're like, God, we paid the same price for what we had as what they've paid for those amazing boats. And the difference is, is that they're super organized and they've got a crew of like eight or 10 or maybe six to 10. And we just faffed about and went with four. If we'd just taken a couple more of our of our mates, we probably could have done it way better and had a whole boat to ourselves, which is definitely a better way of doing it. If you got a crew on a boat that you don't know and say the boat split 50-50, one crew and then, and then the guys that you know, you always get that debate of where are we going to go? Where are we going to surf? And that's, you've, that's you've got those now. levels as well though, haven't you? Because yeah. you know, you could be four pro surfers that, that rock up on the boat and then you've got guys that are like, you know, lower level intermediate that don't really want to surf you know, oh, massive totally. solens yeah. that's yeah. just smashing shallow, <laughs> like two foot reef. Well, we've had that before as well. I mean, I've done trips where we've taken a smaller crew, we've got on a really good boat and we had um, like one year, there was a, a whole chunk. I mean, I can't even remember who they were. It's like Dane Beaver and a few of those guys from the Northern, um, from Australia, like Northern beaches. A whole load of that, I'd say, early 2000 rip curl crew. We were on a boat with those guys. There's five of them and three of us. And we basically sat in the lineup watching them getting pitted every day, doing massive turns, punting airs. And we were like, oh my God, it's our turn. We got to paddle into this thing. And it's a bit of a shocker. So you have a week. I mean, you learn to surf just by watching and, and you're pushed to your limits. But it makes for a bit of a nervous week. <laughs> it's like eight foot... And uh, maybe it's about a foot deep on the reef. You're like, oh crap, it's my go. I've got to go. <laughs> well, yeah, I couldn't. I couldn't imagine doing that. I mean, I've been quite lucky. The couple of the boat trips that I've done, we, we've done with um, with a couple of teams and stuff. So we've yeah. had like ten to twelve people on there. Yeah. But uh, like you're saying, the only problem with that is that you do have varying ability. And one of my main problems that I have. And this is no disrespect to anybody that I surf with, you know, my friends as well, is that the, the, the levels are very different a lot of the time. So, you yeah, know, when, yeah. when I want to go and surf, when it's really good and it's big, I want to go and surf some like shallow reefs around, you know, Devon and Cornwall. I can't really go with those people. And nine times out of 10, I'm not without blowing my smoke up my own ass. I'm surfing on my own because yeah. I, I know that if I go down there, they're going to look at it or if they go out, they're just going to get absolutely annihilated. So it's, it's kind of a similar thing with the boat trip, isn't it? Once you pull it to a lineup, that's pretty much you. Yeah, I mean, there's there's two, I reckon there's two things, two major things I've learned. And you're right, one of them, I mean, we surfed a, a well-known left-hander not long ago in that big pumping early season swell that we had. There was me, you, and a handful of others that we know that are out mm. there. But a lot of people turned up that day, looked at it and didn't get in, just because the current was going to basically take people half a mile down the coast so you get that you get the first thing is like what's people's ability and how comfortable are they going to be if we put them on the boat and how do they mix with all the other surfers and it's a bit weird it's kind of like I don't know whether it's social engineering or whether it's like just <clears throat> gauging how different people surf and what sorts of waves they want to surf but you can never ever put a full boat trip together where everybody is at the same level and they want to surf the same waves. Like get some rippers, just want to go right hand on the forehands. 
um, you get some rippers that only ever want to go left because they're goofy footers. And that can be one reason why the boat will divide. And then you get different types of waves. Like I like, I don't like the massive, massive surf because you just end up going straight, basically you're getting two waves and then that's it. Um, so I know exactly what I want. But if you set up a boat trip, it's like you want to make sure everyone gets waves. So how everybody surfs and what they're going to want to surf is one aspect. Then the other aspect is actually getting them on the boat in the first place. Because you'd be amazed, like I said earlier on, like if I turn up at a local, you're in a car park and there's a whole bunch of people that have been on trips or they booked to come on the next trip. So they're asking loads of questions. It's like, so yeah, you're only on the boat once you paid. And that is the biggest barrier. And it's amazing. The number one excuse is, well, I've just got to check in with the missus. As soon as I hear that, I'm like, yeah, no, they're not coming. So they might rip. They might be, yeah, I'm going to go and surf macaronis or I'm going to go and surf Burger World and we're going to smash it, all this sort of stuff. And then they say, but I'm going to check with my missus. I'm like, yeah, he's out. (laughs) He's not coming. (laughs) You know, one of my jobs in the Marines is, you know, is event organizing. Yeah, right. You've seen it all then. Yeah. So until you, that transition of money is there, even if it's just a deposit, yeah, it's really difficult to to hook people in. I've run a couple of couple of trips myself, and nothing major, but getting getting money out of people is really difficult. Now we do subsidised stuff because we the, the way that the military works is that you can um, gain funding for doing sport or adventure training, yeah, and then you'd pay like a personal contribution towards it. But you'd be surprised just asking 50 quid for somebody to do something. That's a nightmare. That would cost you £400 is ridiculous. 50 quid? I'm not paying that. Yeah, yeah. But look how much it would cost if you were going... And all your transport, all your food... You don't even have to think. It's all done. It's all done for you because... I'm organising it. I'm the one that's like doing all the paperwork, getting all the insurances, booking it all. I'm doing it. Yeah. All you got to do is give me that cash. Just turn up at the airport and for turn us. up with your shit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but we have the same. I mean, it's uh, one thing we find is that we're we're we usually. I mean, it's very rare that we ever do this. And saying it, we literally did it last night that we dropped a boat trip in for like I think as soon as the legal release of all of the. Re- lockdown restrictions is gone on the 21st of June we're literally a week later we're going so we've done one really quick there but people won't commit to something that's like 12 months away but you are never going to get on a boat trip these days unless you commit 12 months out minimum I mean we've also like 2022 booking up trips because what we do is we we know so many of the operators now that I can guarantee like me and Dan, we can we can put a crew together dead easy. And I reckon we've probably got a list of 60, 70 surfers that are good for it. You know, they don't have to check with the missus. They're in whatever. Just want to go on a boat trip and have it organized for them. So we can fill a boat straight away. So what we do is we know a whole bunch of the operators, not the big, I mean, we know the big businesses, but the smaller ones with the good boats and the good guides. I mean, a lot of them are, are British. Where they know we're good for it, we book up trips, but we get the we get basically mates rates prices. So when we say like in twelve months time we're going to come on this boat trip, we're going to go to Indo. There's like we've got room for eight, maybe ten. This is the price. That price is going to be way lower than anyone will get online, or if they go individually, or if they set up their own crew from scratch. What we do, or what I do, is we don't make any money from the trips. What we do is we pass all that saving through. So if you were coming ads, you'd basically get 
you get the trip for 500 quid less than if you book direct. And all I do is just organize it. And then through Greenover, you know, if people want kit and boards or they've never been before and they want some advice on what to take, because you know, the, the freshies that just turn up is hilarious. You know, within two days, they've rubbed themselves basically raw um, just from paddling around with no top on. Um, so we do all of that sort of stuff. And then if the first trip that people have is a really good experience, then they just, they're on that list every year, desperate to come back. So if we could book more trips, we would do. Um, but you'd be amazed how many are on the list but never actually make it. Talk a little bit about the the process of booking the trip. So what you do. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a big subject, actually. I mean, so much goes on behind the scenes, which no one will ever see. I mean, if you ask anyone, I mean, I know you've organized loads of stuff, like way more complex stuff than boat trips. But especially now, boat trips are super complex. But a lot does go on. And it depends where you're going as well. So Maldives, you can pull together really quick. I mean, we've done 20 or 30 there. It's super easy just because of the location. It all starts with who's in the crew. <laughs> and I often find that you end up, you start with a little list of like 20 people that want to go. Then you got to pin down that date. And you'd be amazed how many people phone me and start saying, oh, well, let me take you through my work diary and my work commitments. I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> are you free on these dates so you have to juggle like a final list of say 12 guys you have to juggle all the dates but what i actually do is you've got to work in parallel with say like we do some stuff we've got some stuff coming up with mentawi surf co guy morgan over in indo they're in a boat called so gracia like they're the best like there isn't a better guy in indo at all and he rips lovely guy so what i did with guy is we pinned down the best week so if you're going to go to Indo, if you're going to go out of season, you run a risk and you need to let everybody know who's booking that there's a risk in the waves. It's not that much of a risk. But if you go in the middle of peak season, like say July, August time, you need to let people know there's a risk that it could be 10 foot every day. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not only doing the dates, it's letting people know the risk. And what is risk for me, because I've been so many times... Might be, that might be minimal, right? But for somebody else who's never been before, who's got kids, who perhaps hasn't travelled, who perhaps hasn't been away from home for two weeks, for you know, particularly that part of the world, they're com completely freaked out. But they really want to go, you know, and they've got the money and they're good to go, and the missus has signed it off. So you have to juggle all of that social stuff that people have in their lives, and you want to do it. You know, I don't want to count people out, but at a point, you then have to say. These are the dates. The boat is locked in. You're in once you paid. Then you've got the money transfer processes. You know, they want 10,000 bucks up front. And if they're not English or British registered, then you've got to offshore all that cash. And if you've ever tried paying a random bank account, 10 grand in one hit from your own account, it's really hard because a bank won't let it happen. So I have to phone my bank and get authorization to pay it. Then you've got what day do I pay it because of the um, exchange rates, which at the moment are all over the place. So you say to your crew, right, it's 10 grand a deposit between 10 of us. It's all good. And then the exchange rate skunks you and you've got to put it up another 100 bucks per person. So you've got, to, you've got to be super careful not to layer up all the costs just in the faff of organizing it. And that's that's the major hump over. Then you've got flights. Then you hit, right, what are we going to surf? What sorts of waves? What kit do I take? 
how do I get fit? And people start asking for training programs to get fit, to get it in there. And I'm like, just go surf, right? And just perhaps don't drink so much beer for a little go while. Go on YouTube. Uh, yeah, super easy stuff. <laughs> um, but then you get to boards. What boards do I need to take? And it's that's the most fascinating subject out of everything. I've seen people turn up with two coffins of board bags and surf one board. I take loads of boards, only ever surf one board. So I'm just as bad. But people come to destinations where the waves are likely to be pumping and they got all sorts of crazy stuff. Um, so the what goes on in the background is really labor intensive. Um, and I generally get everything going. I set up like a WhatsApp group, like all the simple stuff helps. But if anybody wanted to know what it's like, put a crew together of 10 people and get them to Indo safely, on a boat safely, surf for 10 days safely and back home safely. And when you're not really like qualified, I'm not a medic, I'm not a travel guide or any of those sorts of things. Um, so it could, yeah, it puts a pressure on, but you know, as soon as you're there, you're surfing, so it's all good. <laughs> I definitely un- understand what you're saying about people asking questions. Hence the reason why I'm doing a podcast called The Grumpy Surfer. Yeah. I'm very sarcastic, uh, <laughs> quite cynical, narcissistic, potentially. <laughs> So when people are asking me stupid questions like, do I need to take a rash vest? What type of rash vest do I yeah, need to... Yeah. Do I take boardies? What do I put under my boardies? Do I take a wetsuit? You know, boards and stuff like that. I'm like... Yeah, just I'm work organizing it out. the trip. Yeah. I'm not packing your kit for you. Do that yourself. Yeah, I'm the same. And I, what I do is like, I just highlight all the things that could go wrong. So there's nothing... When you're on a boat trip and you're in the middle of nowhere in Indo... If you've got a problem with one person on the boat, it puts everyone else's trip at risk. And we've had this before, actually. I mean, I have kicked a few people off boats because they can mentally freak out and get super homesick and they're trying to get on the sat phone every five minutes at 200 quid a minute. Or they're starting to hassle the skipper who's actually ultimately in charge to, to take the boat back to Padang, 100 miles away. You know, you're gonna that's the trip gone and over. So I try and make sure that we minimize that risk by at least having people, I mean, you never know where they're gonna freak out and a lot of people do freak out and just gotta get off the boat. Most places now you go to in Indo though, you can offload people onto an island, stick them on a fast boat and they can look after themselves. Same in the Maldives actually, we we stuck a few guys on an island once. I don't know what they did, but we saw them back at the airport when we all left. I think they'd had a whale of a time. I don't know what they've been doing. One guy flogged all his surfboards. He was going to marry some bird on some island. No way. <laughs> yeah. But you do have to manage people a little bit and make sure there's no risk to the rest of the trip. And it's really simple stuff. Like they've worn the skin through to the ribs just from paddling around or they've hit the bottom or they've not known how to clean up cuts and bruises. Well, they've got, I mean, God, we, we could, the stories I could tell about injuries. I've, do it let's do oh, it well we had them um, in fact this one wasn't long ago was it 2017 maybe we surfed as me i think you've had him on the podcast Stu pointer mm-hmm. it was late one evening it's actually in the maldives but the swell was pumping absolutely massive no one was really surfing and Stu and i surf a lot and the the boat that we're on this crew um i'd say they're all kind of like intermediate surfers pretty fit but not you know we don't have any like guys that have been serving eight hours a day for god knows how long um but Stu and i were kind of on it and the, we pulled up at this wave called quotas 
and uh, it's a really gnarly right-hander when it's big, really thick. I mean, it, it doesn't feel like you're in the Maldives at all. Pretty shallow. Anyway, it's a super fast bowly takeoff and the end section is razor sharp. So you kind of skip into it, skip down the line, do whatever and kick out. Easy paddle out back to the lineup. But if you're caught under this thing, it's a killer. Anyway, it's late in the evening. Everyone had surfed all day and Stu and I got back in for an evening session. One of the other boys jumped in with us, super keen. Yeah, lovely guy, actually pretty fit. Um, but the wave was probably just a little bit beyond him for that time of the day with the amount of energy that he had left. And d- despite my best coaching effort to say, look, do you, do you really want to get in here? Like Stu and I just going in for an hour, going to blast a couple, then we're going to get out for a couple of beers. Uh, but he was having none of it. He's like, no, I'm getting in. I've got to maximize my week definitely getting in and he he was having none of it so he jumped off the boat with us now i've surfed with him a whole bunch unusually he paddled to the lineup to the peak pretty slowly and Stu were there Stu and i were there pretty quick anyway i've done i've done the loop three or four different waves Stu's surfing his backhand he's done the same and we're feeling it and we're tired and this guy he didn't have any waves but he'd paddled for at least half a dozen by this point Anyway, I've had a wave, kicked out on the inside, and he paddles for this bomb. And I'm like, he's not caught it very quickly, but he's still paddling. He should have backed off. But he paddles and paddles. Anyway, by the time he stands his feet, his thing is absolutely pitching. He's in exactly the wrong place. And I'm like, this ain't going to be good. Over he goes, but he pops up. He's been under the water for a long time, and he's popped up right the way down the line where I've just kicked out of a wave. Anyway, pops up. All I can see is a massive pool of blood and his board. Then his head comes up and I'm like, fuck, are you all right? What's going on? And he turns around and what's happened is as he's gone over the falls on this thing, the point of his board has gone in under his eye. Oh, no. And skewered the whole lot out. Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm like, shit. And actually, we had our big boat parked like probably 200 yards away. But those guys couldn't see what was going on. And I'm like, he's right in the impact zone. I'm the only one around here. I can see what's going on. And he comes up and he's shouting help. help and he's just shouting in that way. And I can see what's going on. It's pretty savage. And I'm like, right, I'm in. So I paddled in, grabbed him, got him on his board. And I just paddled him out. He's paddling with one arm. I'm paddling with one arm and I'm pulling him out. Anyway, the guide, um, Ali in the Maldives, he's awesome, awesome guy. He's straight in, paddles over, brings a little speedboat over as well. Anyway, I scoop up the contents of what's come out of his eye and basically put it back in the socket and get him to put his hand on it and paddle him back to the boat. And by the time we've got him back to the boat, like the, his whole his head has completely swelled up and there's just blood coming out from under his eyes. Really nasty injury. So that's a really bad one when people kind of don't judge it right because there are consequences in a lot of these waves. And it's a freak accident because the end of his board, it could happen anywhere. It could happen two foot, like our local. Um, so it was a bit of a freak accident, but it w- happened because someone got in when they probably shouldn't have done uh, more than anything. But anyway, like within, I think within 12 hours, he was back on the boat, beers, happy days. And thank God after a number of surgeries, he's absolutely fine. He can see everything works. You wouldn't even notice it now, although you can paddle around him a little bit easier because he's, he can't move his eyes quite so quick, <laughs> but just, you see some horrible stuff and it's usually because people just don't necessarily judge it. So a lot on boat trips, a lot of, I'd say, um, 
coaching goes on to make sure we avoid those sorts of things because quite easily the whole trip could have been pulled we could have to take everyone back to the mainland whilst he's in hospital and for some people that would have been a big issue they're like well why should i spend all this money with with some of those trips as well people might argue about the price that it costs for something but normally the more expensive ones will have like the insurance policies yeah uh, and all the all the all the policy and the and the, the health and safety behind it to ensure that you know they are good to go in all respects because you're in another country yeah you're halfway around the world those types of countries are not renowned for having the most health safety hospitals in the world to to deal with like massive trauma injuries as well that's right yeah so you know what you're paying for with those trips is actually what you're you're getting your money for with how they look after you too yeah and you need um you need know-how so like um maldives now i mean that injury that accident i just described the private healthcare the guy got was his access to it was quicker than it would have been so say you have an injury at croyd in the middle of summer it's going to take you a long time to get to hospital because you're not going to get an ambulance down that road, you know, and you might wait for a helicopter. He was in surgery in 45 minutes. I mean, they picked him up in a doctor's powerboat, two 400s on the back of it, and they just blasted it to the horizon. And he was back again pretty quick. So that worked well. However, you go to Indo, and I've seen people stitched up with a rusty fishing hook. In fact, there's one guy, he shoved his hand in a reef as he fell off a wave and it ripped his finger off. Um, and that one, I don't know, I can't remember how that one was fixed. Basically, I think he took loads of pills. <laughs> uh, and they just tied some fishing line around the stump of the finger and packed him off somewhere to some island, and they just basically closed it over. But he's fine now. He went back, he's still surfing. But you see all sorts of stuff over there. So you've got to have in your insurance policy, you've got to have medevac, you know. I probably ought to be better at checking people have got all that stuff, but I just assume they have. I tell them about it, but sometimes it comes with the packages. Other times, yeah, that yeah. it's an it's an individual's provocative whether they whether they want it or not. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you're not supposed to be on any of the boats unless you if you've got anything less than a minimum standard of medevac emergency evacuation. Because what that does, it means that if you've got to get off the boat, you can get off the boat, but everyone else can stay put and still have their holiday. Well, let's swing this round. Let's put it in a bit more of a positive light. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we spoke, yeah. spoke oh, about some pretty hardcore <laughs> shit for the last 10 minutes. No, well, they're super good. I mean, those things are rare, really rare. I've done, I don't know, 20, 30, you know, maybe like quite a few trips year in, year out on the bounce. And there's only a very, maybe three or four gnarly stories. I got way more gnarly stories from surfing like local reefs around here and just beach breaks and stuff, way more. So it's part of surfing, right? It's probably why we do it. What makes a good boat trip then? What what combinations of, of putting it together? I think we've covered a lot of it yeah. already. But... No, it's a good point because um, the ones that I think are the best are the ones where you've got a really good crew that are easygoing um, that get on, that are happy to chip in and buy a round of beers and what goes around comes around. You're never out of pocket on these sorts of things, but a crew that definitely gets on because if they get on, then the days where say one of the surfers is an intermediate surfer or a beginner wants to go surf two, three foot, nice mellow lefts and rights. They have that day or they have that afternoon, but the whole boat goes in with them. They probably don't like that because it means there's loads of people in the lineup. But 
and everyone enjoys those sorts of surfs. So the crew that you go with, if they all get on, it makes it brilliant because then deciding which waves to surf every day is not an issue at all. And, you know, you get days where it's cranking and three or four will get in, you surf lefts and surf rights. So all that variety makes it brilliant. And you know, because every night it's a party. Every night, as soon as the sun goes down, the stereo goes on, the food comes out, the beers come out. You're looking at the, all the photos from that day and it's just brilliant. I mean, if I could just live on a boat, it'd be, be ace. <laughs> One of my wife's friends, she was uh, in a relationship or is married now. Um, a guy that owns a boat, well, owned a boat in Indo and he oh, wasn't right. a surfer, he was a diver. Yeah. So he, they lived on a boat for, must have been about five or six years, yeah, had a kid. Yeah. Kid lived on the boat with them as oh, well. Nice. It was, it must have been a nice existence, but also I've been on boat trips as well. And I understand that you can't, it's the comfort level is not, you know, what yeah. it would be in a house with your sofa, your TV. I'm not saying that those are your needs and those are your needs and wants and all that sort of thing, but it can be quite a rough lifestyle as well. It can be, yeah. I mean, there's no, I mean, there are a couple of boats. There's a couple of boats in Indo and in fact, the Maldives, which are super pimped up. They're amazing. But we, I mean, I take my boards and a backpack with a few pairs of shorts and stuff in it. And you do kind of, I mean, it's not roughing it, roughing it. In the good old days, we used to really rough it. But now the boats, you know, they're pretty luxurious. Most of them have got Wi-Fi um, if you pay a little bit more. Some of the boats we have have got like, we have one, we have one, when was it? Just before the pandemic. It had a massive bar on the middle deck and every evening we turned it into a nightclub. So it had like a disco ball, sun lounges. And you just see all these little speedboats from all the other boats that are moored up come over and before you know it, you've got like a little mini nightclub on the go. So it's not too bad these days, but it's not quite family proof just yet, unless you're into that sort of thing. I know you were quite keen to spin a few stories about your boat trips and stuff. Yeah, yeah, done a few of those. <laughs> yeah. So uh, what what have been some of your most memorable trips that you've been on? Yeah, well, we had, in fact, uh, I mean, they've not yet blended all into one, but there's, there's one in particular which I like, and it goes back to Dan Maker, I know you had on the podcast, mentioned him, who I, who I do a lot of stuff with. But this was maybe three years ago, I think. And we it was just a quick blast. We went to the Maldives. And it was a small, we had a huge boat, massive boat, but for a very small crew um, of just guys around here, basically, that came with us. And there was one session in particular that I remember. And it was first thing in the morning at a wave called Cokes, right-hander. Probably people listening to this will, will know it or have seen it anyway. Um, on its day... It breaks like Indo. It's a brilliant wave. Loads of power, loads of grunt. Uh, quite an easy wave to move around in. Anyway, Dan's a great surfer, really good surfer, but I've never really seen him surf perfect, right hand, hollow, like reef breaks. And uh, with a suntan, Dan can look Maldivian, which is a weird thing to say, but it also means that Dan can sit anywhere in the lineup and get any wave he paddles for. <laughs> So he's quite a handy bloke to know. So I usually sit right next to him and make sure everyone knows I'm with him and I need to get a wave as well. Anyway, this session in particular, we were in for quite a few hours, but it was well over, I'd say like maybe double overhead, maybe a bit more. And um, I just remember getting three or four waves, like all time, slotted out the other end, pretty easy, minimum risk, but amazing waves. And every time I paddled back out, 
Dan was in the slot, front of the queue. And I remember, I don't even know, he was surfing some tiny little shortboard, actually. It was quite funny, unusual for him. And uh, I remember seeing him take off on just a perfect doubling up, probably double over red as well, right-hander. And he just slid into this thing. And the whole way down, he just stood on his board, hands behind his back. And he was in. I mean, he wasn't super deep or anything, but he was in. But from where I was, it just looked awesome. But the thing I found it most memorable is just a look on his face. Because I think that's probably the first time in a long time that he'd been in that situation, surfing that good on that type of wave. And then the next guy off was another good mate of mine, pretty much exactly the same. Then the next guy off, really good mate. So our boat, pretty much, I mean, there's only like six or seven guys in. Most most of them are our crew. And it just, the lineup worked perfectly. Everyone was getting slotted and the waves were unbelievable. And I remember that one really well, just because when we got out, we were so stoked. I mean, the feeling was just awesome. And that's why you do boat trips. And I could probably recount that type of story three or four times a year for the last 20 years. Um, so that's why we do them. It's just amazing. They're, they're definitely one of those things that people always dream of doing. Yeah. But like a lot of things in life, everyone's very much, oh, I wish I could do this and I wish I could do that. And oh, I wouldn't be brilliant if I could do this. No, well, just go and do I'm it. I'm the same. I'm like, do it. Because people say, oh, it's a one-off trip. I got like, there's a few guys like, it's a one-off trip. I got to get signed off from the missus. I'm like, it ain't a one-off trip. Like, how many times do you go skiing every year or how many times do you do all these sorts of things? If you want to come to the Maldives, it's a week. That's all you're going to cook. Just take that week off work. It's not that much. You know, we can turn a Maldives week in for like 800 quid. Flight's on top. Indo's a bit more because you're going further. But as soon as people kind of do it once, they then realize that they can do it year in, year out. And that's cool because then people are surfing a lot. They get better at surfing. I mean, if you want to get better at surfing, do those sorts of trips. So how does COVID affect the boat trips now? So how does 21, 2021, 2022 look with COVID in it? Yeah, well, I think it's suffice to say that everything basically just ground to a halt. As a bunch of CTers got over there last year, just as we were working out what the hell to do during lockdown. Um, and they all scored it. They're on a, a Sibon Barrow, I think, a boat. Uh, called Sibon Baru, and they've had visas and they got there on the basis that they're obviously working because they're all pro surfers. That's about the only trip um, that I can think of that's like out there that's really taught us how to do this. So basically the pandemic hit and we couldn't get there. No one can get there, travel's off. And also people are completely freaked out. So even if you could go, no one really wants to go. There's no vaccines, none of that sort of stuff. So we pushed everything from 2020. We pushed it all into this year, 2021. And it's all pretty much from the end of June onwards throughout the rest of the year. So um, it's meant that last year the Mentawis were empty but a load of the operators aren't making any money and you can only get there with visas. Indo then, I think towards the end of that year, towards the end of last year, went on shutdown. So then you couldn't, you know, they got ahead of the visa thing and said you can't even get in or out. Um, plus, if you are going to get in and out, when you leave, how do you get back into your own country without going through quarantine? It's really difficult. Oz, obviously Brazil, aren't going anywhere. So the whole thing's gone on lockdown. This year, it looks like things are opening up because what I think they learned in Indo is that they can make a little bit of money through visas. But we don't yet know whether we'll need a visa to get there 
this year or not. In fact, I'm meeting Guy Morgan from Mentari Surf Co. tomorrow, who's basically, he's flown in and out. He's got a place on HTs, runs Solar Gracia Boat. So I'm just going to ask him, what does he think? What do you reckon? Because we've got, we got trips at the end of July um, and we want to be able to make sure that we can get in and out of the country. Um, that's UK, but then also in and out of Indo. I think once you're on the boats, you're okay because every lineup at the moment seems to be really empty. There's a few land camps are still operating and people can get in and out because if you're locked down in Indonesia, you can travel, say, from Bali to, to Indo, to the Mentawis. That's fine. But I think generally it just ruined it all for 18 months. But my way of thinking is maybe this year, if you can get there and you can take the extra logistics like testing at airports, all that sort of stuff, lateral flow tests, maybe a visa to be in Indo for, I don't know, 30 days or whatever. If you can get there, it's going to be empty. So everyone running boats over there and land camp says it's, it's empty. If you can make it, you want to get here because empty Indo in 2021 unheard of so we're pushing through we're going to try and make it happen <laughs> fingers crossed um but it's pretty uh it's pretty devastating to be honest to roll all those trips because you lose we lose a lot of people if you roll from one year to the next because they might not have the cash or they've lost jobs or they're nervous about vaccines and traveling so that's been a whole bunch of other phone calls to try and help people through their own thinking i think once june rolls through and yeah. people can kind of get back to normality you can use that in inverted commas or not you can kind of see where you sit with it i think a little bit i think everyone's in the same situation regardless of whether you run surf trips or just you know your standard holiday mate uh, brokers like tui or yeah. thompson or somebody like that they're all everybody's going to be in the in the same situation hence probably the reason why we've got these like stay vacations that everyone keeps talking about yeah yeah they're all going to come here aren't they and I mean, yeah. I might Airbnb my house. I'll get a few weeks in Indo for that, definitely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the cost of going on holiday in this country, when you look at, I mean, look, look at um, centre parks, for instance. Yeah. The amount of money that you'd pay for centre parks for a week, you could easily go out. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, I, like that. yeah, if I've got a week off at home with a family and the kids and say we're surfing, whatever, staying somewhere, load of stuff going on, eating out, I'll spend more money doing that in a week than I will being in the Maldives for a week on a boat. I mean, it's it's not obviously got my family involved, which is the downside. <laughs> but like for like, you're not spending too much more money once you've got there. But yeah, it's um, it's going to be weird. I think this year we might just, if everyone's up for it, all the, all the guys that we've got coming this year, they're still up for it. A lot have been vaccinated, which tells you the average age of some of these guys that are on the boat. If they're up for it, then I think we'll push through because the opportunity to score empty... Indo is just, it's too big. I can't pass it up. Got to make it happen. You're making me a little bit angry. <laughs> yeah, well, you're coming now. now. Yeah, if anyone if anyone comes off the boat, you're coming. In fact, we've got, yeah, we've got a space in July. There's only nine of us going. Um, and of all of the nine, I'd say there's four or five that will be surfing all the time. And then we've got some guys that'll be catching big fish and chilling the beers. I'm not going to lie, and I know you said it, but if I told my missus I'm going to go surfing in July, in the the Maldives, missus. Yeah. she would have cut my nuts. <laughs> I'm just going to put, I'm just going to say yeah. it. I am, I am coming. It's a business trip. 
<laughs> Mate, you live down the road, so it's stupid to not make you know, yeah, the use of the no, opportunities. We've got, we got to make got it happen. Yeah, 100%. Definitely make it happen. Let's talk a little bit about Green Overhead and Green Over Sports. So how did you get involved with Dan and, and all that sort of thing? Yeah, well, um, of years ago, I did a little bit of road biking just to kind of keep fit. And Dan, as you know, is like an ex-pro road biker, but he's always surfed all his life. I think he had a few years off to, to do his road biking and mountain biking stuff and build his business. But we did a bit of bike riding together. And the first time I met him, we're like, oh yeah, I do a bit of surfing. And he's like, yeah, I do a bit of surfing. And I'm like, well, I organize boat trips. He's like, oh, that sounds super cool, but I'm not fit. And I'm like, don't worry about it. Just get fit as you surf, just come. Anyway, we got him on a boat. This is going back years. We got him on his first trip to, I think, Indo. Uh, no, uh, Maldives. One a, a quick, a quick week. Maldives is a real good like tester for people. So if like they like that, very quickly they go right. We're going to go to Indo, and I'm like, that's good because Indo's better. Uh, but anyway, we got him to the Maldives, and uh, within, I mean, he instantly great. Just a lovely guy to travel with. He's got entry into all the first class lounges at all the airports, which is very handy. So I think we'd had a few beers before we even got on the plane. So it was started off well. <laughs> but then um, within a couple of sessions, he was surfing ways he's never surfed before, loving it. He was ripping as well. His surfing just went through the roof really quickly. And his board started getting smaller, more high performance, all that stuff happened. So when you're on a boat with a load of blokes for a week, just, you know, chewing the fat and drinking and surfing and stuff you come up with loads of business ideas so with by halfway through the week i was like dan i think it would be really good you got green over sports loads of action sports you know how about like you know you should start up a surfing business we actually tried to get him to buy the boat first of all but he said no to that although it's still on the cards i reckon <laughs> so we got home and like i think probably within two or three months he'd set up green overhead and he'd immediately got opportunities to sell all the major brands, all the kit that we would use on a routine basis, but all the kit that people would need to go on boat trips. So he just got so into it. He's so good at business. He's so good at networking. He knows everybody and he's very fast to get things done. So he set up green overhead and I said to him, well, I'll organize a whole bunch of boat trips. We can use them um, as a bit of marketing. It's basically the idea that we'll get all of our mates onto super cheap boat trips. If they want some kit, odds on people will need kit to go on boat trips. We'll give them deals through you for boards and fins, also all that sort of stuff. Um, so it just started working and it went from there. And then all of a sudden he's doing Pizel boards, which at that point in time, no one was really doing in the UK that much, but they were about to go massive, obviously. Uh, and then I said to him, well, you're doing Pizel, that's good. How about this other brand called Sharpie? try doing those as well uh you got a hold of sharp eye super quick which are like the best things i've ever served for me i just love them um and it kind of went from there into decline as well so i don't, I don't really have too much to do with the business i'm i think i'm more like his surf trip pa now <laughs> i just book trips and put them in his diary and i yeah send him a list of surfboards that he needs to buy and sell of which at least half a dozen are specifically custom for me <laughs> and uh, just supported him in creating probably the best wetsuit on the planet right now with, let's, a, with let's a big talk, brand on it. Let's talk a little bit about the, the green over association with Decline then because yeah. I, I've been privileged enough to 
have a couple of the wetsuits and and try them. The shorties, the the summer. Yeah, you see them; they're awesome, aren't they? Yeah, they are uh, amazing. And I I tried the I've had the five four three this winter. That cyclone. With, yeah, yeah, with the um with the two mil hoodie vest vest yeah, underneath. Yeah. Oh my god, it's like the hottest thing on the planet. Yeah, and even when it was like the coldest part of the winter, that's it's crazy, isn't it? It was. It was killing me. Yeah. I had to take me other yeah, points. Yeah, yeah. I that, I mean, so it came about like, so Dakai are a massive brand and they're involved in lots of things. And Dan is obviously aware of them because they do mountain biking, snowboarding, all the action sports that Dan's into basically. And we had a conversation at one point and, I was, and Dan was thinking, well, do I create my own wetsuit and brand it myself? And I don't know how we ended up getting there, but he'd networked his way into Dakai with a view of the only category they hadn't got uh, for Dekine. And Dekine is technically actually a really high-end technical brand, huge amount of brand loyalty. Globally, it's massive. Um, And customers, once they've had Dekine stuff, keep coming back because it's it's well-constructed. And the only thing they didn't do was a wetsuit, yet you look at the range of pro surfers that they sponsor, they've got everybody. And they take on all the best guys. It seems like any new kid on the block, immediately Dekine get hold of them. So their team roster's massive. But the one thing he didn't have was a wetsuit. So Dan just set about saying to them, right, well, if you're up for it, I'll do all this for you. I can. I know the industry, but I know how to manufacture, I know how to distribute. I've got an idiot called John Jameson who likes flashy wetsuits and he's got some ideas. I don't think he said that, but he probably was thinking it. <laughs> and before long, he's then designed like the first generation of wetsuits, which we, I remember we took them, uh, we took them down to the contest in Hossegor and we we talked to all the Dekine guys, like the global head of marketing for Dekine was there for all the all the water sports stuff. All the pros were there as well. So we had to hang out with all those guys. Yeah, which, had, had to hang yeah, out with all them. Yeah. Well, it was really, really good. Must have been really shit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was really good until we had to go surfing with them. And then all of a sudden I'd pull my hamstring, couldn't get in. I think, I think I'd talked it up a little bit more than I should have done, which is standard. Uh, but we had those guys uh, trying on the wetsuits. They were loving them pretty quick. All the feedback was good. And that was the first generation. Those are the first suits. I was wearing them. Like, I think, you know, you're onto the Cyclones and stuff, which are the second generation. But a few of us were wearing them. So we were able to improve them really quickly. And it's amazing how many pro surfers know nothing about wetsuits because most of the time they're not wearing them. But they know nothing about boards either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they just get shaped for them. Yeah. Um, so... When we were talking to them, they were like, oh, you guys really know what you're doing. I'm like, yeah, well, we've been wearing wetsuits for 30, 40 years down to, I mean, what do we get in this country? Lowest I've been in is like, apart from the wave pool, like six or seven degrees, chilly Lynmouth on the right-hander in the river. So we know wetsuits. So we tested a whole bunch, a few design iterations later. And essentially what, I mean, the one that you're wearing now, the Cyclone, that's what I've got as well. I mean, I've seen some new stuff coming up as well. They're just unbelievable because we just, we were wearing all the other major brands that are awesome wetsuits. And we just piled all of that experience, all the best bits of all the wetsuits into one suit. And it's very rare. I don't think another company's really done that that well. And we're making tiny little changes, like even around the ankles, like thin and neoprene around the ankles. I don't get cold ankles, but I would want it to be quite lightweight around the bottom of your legs. So we made a few little tweaks like that. And now you put these things on and they are so hot because they fit really well. The neoprene is the highest end neoprene you can get. Um, but because it's tied into Dekine, it's a Dekine wetsuit, it's under the Dekine brand, 
uh, I think it's gone crazy. I mean, you can't get one now. You walk around a warehouse, there, there's, there's none. <laughs> I spoke to a couple of guys in the water and they're asking about the suits and they said, well, where did you get it from? Yeah. And I didn't really tell them, but <laughs> yeah. Uh, what do you think of the boots and what do you think of the gloves? And I said, look, I've got some three mil gloves on and it's like super cold and my hands, my hands go down really, really quickly because of the environments I've yeah. been in and my feet as well. And boots and gloves are amazing. Yeah. And I, I just said to him, look, they're, they're really, really good. You need to get yourself a set. But they also said that they've been on all the websites and they can't find any of the suits or the accessories to go with it because they've just sold out. Yeah, they go so quick. And that's where Dan's smart, right? So you've got to run a business. You can't just, you know, spend all his cash and, and run it all into the ground. So you've got to run a business at the same time. But it's still, uh, it's still young, I would say. But the quality of what's coming out now with all the research that we do and the amount of time, I mean, yesterday we spent two hours talking about just the, the no zip entry system and even this morning you and I have looked at some of the cool stuff coming up um, so you put all of that into it and it means it's a really good suit it's going to sell a lot and Dekine around the rest of the world is a massive brand so you go to the States um, they will want Dekine wetsuits above anything else because they're super loyal to a highly durable high kind of tech wetsuit and that's what they've got now in this country, it's definitely growing. I mean, it's weird. Like we can paddle out, and I'll see other people wearing Dakine wetsuits, and I'm always interested, you know, where they got it, and they obviously got it off off Dan off the website. But what they think of it, and everyone's like, "This is amazing." And now some of the some of the little groms up and coming, they're like, "Oh, how do I get a sticker? And how do I get a wetsuit? And can I have it for free? And all this sort of stuff." And you want to say yes, right? Because it's all good stuff. You you want everyone having a good time and surfing with the best kit. And it's better that it's ours than anyone else's. Um, it's just, yeah, it's hard to get your hands on these things when they start coming through. I think they're all stuck on, on a container ship somewhere in the sea. In the sewers. <laughs> yeah, probably, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's full of wetsuits. Yeah. yeah. There'll be, there be loads of captains in the Suez Canal wearing Dekine wetsuits in the sunshine. Yeah. <laughs> Walking out with these gloves on. Whoa, these are amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't tell Danny, he won't be happy. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about the boards as well. So you, you mentioned that Greenover do Dakine, Alone, Sharpie, Next and Pizels. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I know yeah. you and Dan trial a lot of the boards as well before you sell them because obviously, you know, a good bit of uh, market research behind the yeah, stuff Yeah, it's you pretty sell. handy for free kit. Yeah, so I mean, this is the bit where I really, I, I'm the boat trip guy and I'm kind of the boards guy, help out with a few other bits and bobs. But I'd say um, the boards that we've got, the brands that we've got, they're creating boards for a whole range of surfers. And our thinking was that we will stock boards that are going to work for people that are, you know, a decent price, but they're really well made. But the idea is that we're just not going to sell people boards because it's just what they want. We try to help people get boards that are going to help them surf in a way in which they want to surf. So we take loads of phone calls. We shoot loads of reviews um, and what we do is like, say with Sharpie, we get a whole bunch of boards and then we'll keep some samples or, you know, Dan and I will ride a bunch and there'll be like X team boards, we call them. And those samples, those X team boards or all of them secondhand boards, people can surf them, trial them, see what they think, ask some questions. So that when they buy a board and boards are going to get very expensive over the next couple of years, prices are going to go through the roof because there's just, there's no blanks. There's no material, there's no glass around the world because of the pandemic. Um, it just allows people that when they do spend anywhere between 500 and 1,000 pounds on a surfboard, they're going to get one that they're going to enjoy. 
But Pizel obviously makes some awesome boards. We kind of went down that road, I think, because I just wanted to surf a radius because <laughs> it won't stab in the dark. I was super curious to see what that one was like. And it, it's unbelievable, unbelievable board. But obviously the Ghost is massive, so we sell loads of those as well. Um, in fact, most of our boat trips, everyone will have a Ghost in their board bag, which is crazy. It's like I'd never known a board go as big as that as quick. And obviously it's got John John riding it. But the the Sharp Eyes are a little bit different. If you look at the QS or the CT now, I would say that Sharp Eyes is the most surfed board. And they got like the 77, the HT2, um, Disco Inferno, that one stabbing the dart with Taj. But so many of those boards are awesome because Marcio Zuvi, he shapes them to ride in California. Actually pretty similar waves to us in the UK and around Europe. But then he's also added like the 77, which will just go in anything. And you've seen the speed of people surfing on a sharp eye. Even the local boys that buy them, they're like, this thing is super fast. It's almost got so much drive and squirt. I can't kind of rein it in a little bit. So we're the only people that do sharp eye. Um, it's quite cool because Dan is amazing. Gives me access to the boards that I want to surf. You know, we turn them over after six months unless it's like all time board. And then it stays in my garage. <laughs> Um, but they go really well. We probably want to do a little bit more with them. So we're doing more reviews and getting them out there and getting people surfing them. But what we have learned is as soon as someone buys a sharp eye, they'll always buy a sharp eye. They come back. In fact, we've even had people buy two or three different brands, one of which would be a sharp eye. They'll come back. And one guy came back within 24 hours of surfing them all and said, can I give you back the other two brands? because I just want three sharp eyes now and I want these three models because it's noticeably different. And we're like, well, yeah, okay. Um, I mean, we don't do second-hand board sales per se, uh, but we'll help people out get on the right boards. But they're all great. And um, the alone boards, um, slightly different kind of price point. I ride like a 5.8 Captain, super flat, super fast. It's one of the smoothest boards I've ever surfed. So if you go to the wave pool in Bristol or we've got two foot down the local, I'll be on that. And you can just whiz down the line. Loads of fun. At least you're in the sea getting wet. Um, so it's gone from there. And um, we looked in the, in the container yesterday. There's like 60 new sharp eyes. So it's like a kid in a sweet shop. I was like, that one, that one, that one. <laughs> I think that we ought to actually sell them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. These are actually for the public and yeah. to make money out of, not just for you to... <laughs> yeah, I know. Because so many of them come in exactly my dims as well. So it's like, oh, that one's perfect for me. And Dan's like, no, you can't have it. And a lot of times they're sold before they're even unboxed, which is crazy. And Sharp Eye's not that well known in the UK. But if you go to Portugal, there's loads in the lineup. You go, I mean, Australia's massive. Anywhere else in the world, there's loads of them. But in the UK, we're just, we're probably two years behind the rest of the world. So if you float around Indo, um, you probably might not get so many Pizels, but you'll get loads of Sharp Eye, all the usual standard brands and stuff off, off the peg boards. But you not think that's to do with the standard of surfer as well? Because we A don't bit, get yeah. massively really good guys in the water all the time. I'd say... 70 to maybe 80% of the people that are in the water are normally there during the summer and they're like your Saturday and Sundayers. They're not like your hardcore guys that go down yeah, totally. in the yep. depths of winter. Yeah. So the the boards that you're talking about there are kind of like at the higher end a little bit yeah. towards the intermediate to, to the higher end, which probably is why Sharp Eyes 
don't really yeah i think you're right yeah and we recognize that and we've got the alone boards and next um and there's obviously there's there's boards in the paisel and sharp eye range that are perfect for this country i mean we like i said we did the alone we reviewed the alone captain last night that will come out soon online instagram we did like a one minute review and i just remember saying like this is a board that's super fast it will perform as well when you want it to but it's got all the volume up front it's got nice chunky boxy rails the wide point is slightly further forward it's just a wave catching machine basically and it'll go in as soon as you can surf up to well overhead high that's what we'll sell more of in this country but it goes back to people deciding why they want to go surfing so if you if you make the assumption right everybody wants to enjoy surfing you get those guys that will just paddle out drop anchor and they'll wait for one bomb i've seen you do this at Lynmouth. one bomb <laughs> and they'll smash the life out of it all the way to the beach and just that one wave with say like five massive turns on it spraying buckets that's what they want to do that's how they want to surf but you get other guys that will just scoot around they just want to get loads of waves and just stand up and cruise they're two very different ways of surfing and very different reasons to surf um and if you think that process through, it would influence what type of board you buy. We get so many people turning up and even back on boat trips, right? Say four to five foot, perfect reeling reef break, real cupped out waves, pretty hollow. You can have loads of rocker and you're still going to go super fast. But we get people turning up with like five, four by 25 inches, super flat, no rocker like a thousand fins in it like really wide tail wondering why they can't do turns because they've chosen the board because they just want to be able to paddle around they're worried about not being able to paddle around and catch waves so where you're going and what you're doing should influence what boards you get and the amount of times i've been on boat trips and you like people unzip the coffin and they got five boards with no rocker they're all crazy little twinnies and we everyone watches clips online like josh kerr will rip on a flat twinny at, at can rifles or a wave like that he'll rip right but it's josh kerr you put any of us lot on a board that's as flat as that you just be going over the falls every time because you have the time to paddle in and you won't be able to handle the fact it's flat so you just dig your nose i mean you see people do it at the wave pool all the time on the big set and they're digging the nose because they don't have enough rocker to make the landing but then you got too much rocker to get down the line with some speed so we have to nurse a lot of people through that thinking especially for boat trips there's nothing i mean the amount of times i've given people my boards and said look just surf that i know it looks smaller than you'd normally surf and it's a short board but don't be frightened of it um, you're actually going to love it because this board is designed for this wave and if you're here because you want to surf and do turns then get a board that's going to do turns I think a lot of board design these days has has advanced so much. I mean, we were talking about it earlier about, you know, back in the 90s where you yeah. had these little toothpicks and everyone was buying them because the pros were surfing them. But they yeah. were like really not designed for the average human being. No, not at all. They were a nightmare, weren't they? Yeah, because yeah, there was no volume in them and you couldn't catch anything with them. You actually be literally dropping from the sky before, you know, you could catch a rail <laughs> yeah, and then yeah. surf it because... That's what they were designed to do for those individual people. I think, you know, going back to what I was saying, board design has has come uh, so far now where you do have boards that have got 
hidden volume like my go-to board at the moment is a firewire so i i've just yeah. connected with it because it's super fast it holds its speed it's got a rocker from the nose through to the tail but it's not so much that you lose all your yeah, speed but you can still surf turns. like a shortboard right like yeah. hooking turns and exactly. but, but still fast on those flat kind of wheelchair sections i've got a 510 and it's 30 nearly 37 liters yeah so from for my, my like if you went on a volume calculator the volume cal- calculator for my height size weight yeah it'd be like 20 liters should well <laughs> should be yeah, about 29 30 liters yeah yeah but i understand the way that i surf and the way that i want to is that i want to catch as many waves as possible yeah and be able to paddle and so you still thought have about the energy it. Yeah. yeah you thought about it and bought a board that does exactly what you're trying to do but i also have the experience and the knowledge behind 26 yeah, 27 years of yeah, yeah of buying lots of different boards like those js's those dh's that are literally those paper thin boards yeah, that yeah yeah okay I, I surf them okay when i went to france and places like that but they'll surfing them in good waves now if you have a board that's like that you know i know a lot of the sharp eyes do and and um some of the alone boards they have like that one quiver killer yeah. sort of yeah. board behind it and you have the knowledge like someone like you saying like this is the board that you want to go on a boat trip with or you want to serve this particular break or it's a point or whatever you know th- that's the sort of knowledge that you want to be given not to go like into a surf shop like you used to or you know I and can they'll do sell this you and anything and yeah. they'll sell you anything yeah. they'll and sell you whatever with the biggest margin and then yeah. you've got a piece of shit now that you spent you know seven 800 pound on that you're never going to be able to ride correctly because Geordie Smith or John John Florence rips the shit out of it but yeah, you're yeah, not that person exactly yeah and a lot of people say well uh, you know back in the day the local shaper which is still a really important part of like the surfing culture um, that would be your go-to place um, to get a board and like the amount of local boards I've seen produced where actually the concaves on the bottom it's not a double or a single it's just like a random squiggly funny sanded thing so off the peg is pretty good these days for most surfers unless you are literally john john florence and nobody is we get a lot but that's the other end of the spectrum loads of people turning up on trips and buying boards and like to listen to me like oh my god this guy's gonna rip and be punting airs all over the place and it's like you get there and you're like oh god uh, how are we gonna manage this and you see their own self-esteem drop through their boots after they've had that ass handed to them on some wave in Indo in front of everybody because it's a pretty unforgiving place. But yeah, selection of the right boards to surf is all about whether people can have an honest conversation with themselves. I'm terrible. I'm the worst. I mean, I ride, you know, things that are way too small, way too hard, but I'm happy being dishonest to myself just for a couple more years at least. Do what I say and not what I do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You need a board with loads of volume, you know, maybe get a twinny, fly down the line, enjoy yourself. And I'm like, no. No, I'm stuck in tw- my ways. Yeah, 28 litres, some like, oh, God knows what they are. They're just, but once you get on the waves that you know you should be surfing good, they, they come alive. So, and that's why I go surfing, it's for the turns, not just thousands of waves. Mate, we've been going an hour and a half, so we're a couple yeah, of finishes right. to yeah, tie yeah. this up. So what, what's in the pipeline for yourself and, and Greenover? 
Yeah, so um, there's a few things actually. So we talked a little bit about the Dekime wetsuits. Kind of Dan's got that under control, but if anyone's interested, you can see it all online. It'll start start really flowing, I think, as we come out of the pandemic. And obviously that big boat that got stuck in the series is all sorted. Um, but we are ramping right up on the boat trips. So, um, you know, we're, we're kind of, we're assuming that we're open for business. Uh, we're gonna t- we've got plenty of crews lined up and booked in. They've checked with the missus. They're, you know, they pay their deposits. So that's good. <laughs> but I think over the next couple of years, we'll get right back to a number of boat trips every year. Um, you know, be it Maldives or Indo. Um, so that's definitely coming up. I think probably the biggest thing will be um, expansion of the boards and the brands and getting loads of local guys in the UK surfing some of these boards. We've got a whole bunch of the local crew riding, um, you know, wearing the wetsuits. But we kind of want to get a few more riding our boards and I'm not talking about rippers riding ghosts Paisel ghosts I'm talking about everybody riding our boards because what we'll do more than anybody is we're not just going to sell you stuff because it's a margin that's not what green overhead's about we still need to make money of course otherwise nothing works but it'd be about helping people surf boards where they do have loads of fun and it's right for them and if we can connect that with people coming on boat trips that have the chance to if in their world be on a trip of a lifetime if we can do that then that's going to be super cool but if we can start getting people doing trips of a lifetime every year that's also super cool um so that's what we've got going to keep it simple and just surf as much as possible because it's been a little bit light on surf in the last 18 months (laughs) especially for me mate sounds outstanding finish on the quick fire round then yeah go on then hit me with it so if you were going to surf one surfboard setup for the rest of your life, would it be a single fin, twin fin, quad, thruster, or finless? Oh, the rest of my life. The rest of your life. So that's like the second half of my life as well. I you know I'm. I'd be a thruster. I'm going to be an 80 year old grandpa on a five ten. 23 litre thruster <laughs> like Simon Anderson <laughs> yeah yeah I wish <laughs> favourite surfer and why uh, my favourite surfer is Andy Irons um, years ago in France actually I had the, ch- had the chance to uh, stay in the same apartment as him and his brother and a few other guys party hard um, surfed hard every day and he actually he punted over the top of my head as I was paddling for a wave I think I was attempting to drop in on him um, so I didn't really know him that well, but just got kind of um, hooked up with those guys through luck more than anything. And he's just awesome. He just has a way of going fast and a style that's brilliant. Um, obviously, John John these days is the man as well. But Andy, definitely. First surf movie you ever saw? Well, it'll be Endless Summer, I think, probably is the first one everyone's watched that and then I've watched every surf movie under the sun and these days I just love watching Stab in the Dark being enthusiast for boards and what makes a board go and in what sorts of waves like the chat we just had um, so End of Summer was the first but now I know it wasn't the question but Stab in the Dark I love them they're great which leads me on to the last surfing movie you saw yeah um, well I've been um, watching the CT a lot the last surfing movie I think it was a Kyle Lenny one, actually, um, where he's just talking about all of his big waves. Was it Red Bull TV? Yeah, I think that was a prop one I watched, but like YouTube channels watching loads of it. 
the best person to share a lineup with? Um, two good mates, Dan and Stu. Worst person to share a lineup with? Two best mates, Dan and Stu. That's always people's answers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Stu, Mr. Paddle Round. <laughs> I hope he listens to this. I'm giving him a message. <laughs> yeah. The one place to surf for the rest of your life, where would it be? Macaroni's Indo best wave on the planet for me it's a personal thing for everyone of course but that left hander is just unreal unreal john jameson thank you very much for joining me on the podcast and i appreciate your time cheers ads thanks for having me enjoyed it thank you catch you later and that's it if you're enjoying the podcast please subscribe and follow on your podcast provider and maybe leave a little review on apple podcasts also if you follow the podcast on instagram and Facebook, search for The Grumpy Surfer Podcast. Thanks for listening.